Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. You're not a cop, are you? WKRP in Cincinnati. All right. Well, fellow babies, we got a real treat today. We are talking to WKRP producer Max Tosh. Welcome to the WKRP cast, Max. Thank you. Uh, do you want to start this again? And my last name is pronounced Tash, Max Tash, T-A-S-H. Oh, I guess and maybe that's how it's pronounced in Chicago because that's where I'm from. Uh, but yeah, Tash is somebody else. I've been referred no, no, to as Tash. I apologize. It, it, it really, and up until this moment, it didn't matter to me because I had heard you say that, but I thought, you know, so he doesn't know, big deal. But I'm here, well, so I might as well know. get it right. <laughs> You know, okay. I heard an interview with John Cleese from Monty Python just a few years ago, and the interviewer introduced him as Cleese, which I've always heard him as Cleese. And he said, you've been getting that wrong for years now. It's Cleese. It rhymes with cheese. <laughs> Let me start again here. Hey, fellow babies, we've got a real treat today. We are talking to WKRP producer Max Tash. Welcome to the WKRP cast, Max. Thank you. I'm, I'm pleased and honored to be here. Well, we are glad to have you. We have been in contact with Max for uh, pretty much since the show started. Tom Chihawk put us in touch with Max. And uh, Tom told us, he said, if anybody knows everything about the show, it's Max. <laughs> so you are the, the it's expert. quite possible and, uh, at one time I did. <laughs> well, it, we're talking to you today because you were the writer of Cleanup Radio Everywhere, but I would bet most people recognize you for other reasons, recognize your name, but fans of the show, you were listed and correct me if I'm wrong here, but you were listed on every single WKRP episode, right? You were in the first season, yes. you were a production associate. Then in season right. two, three, and four, you were either associate producer or a coordinating producer. Right. Right. Uh, the very first, the, during the pilot, um, I was uh, one of two runners that we had that, uh, MTM employed, and this is back in fall of 1977. And so they had uh, Lou Grant on, and uh, Rhoda, and um, and Hill Street Blues, and uh, and Tony Randall, and so forth and so on. And so the other gentleman that was a, a runner was a friend of mine. We had both been um, ushers at the Greek Theater the previous summer. I was interested in getting into the business even before I got here. And um, so while I was there, I was applying for jobs everywhere. And I got a job at uh, NBC as a page. And then I got an a, uh, interview with Lynn Ephraim, who was running production at MTM. And I got the job and um, he said he was looking for somebody else. So I uh, went to my friend uh, whose name is Scott Brazil. And if you're uh, any Anybody knowing Hill Street Blues history, Scott uh, started as I did on WKRP. He rose through the ranks, became one of the directors of, of Hill Street Blues and went on the path of single camera dramas. And I went on the path of multi-camera comedy. So we had no conflict and helped each other out uh, in the first couple of years of our, of our lives in the business. So what was the point? Um, so... Uh, uh, <laughs> So, uh, so that first year at MTM, uh, yeah, uh, I was involved with uh, all the shows running and running and running. And then when the pilot season came up, 
um, I latched on to any of the uh, uh, half-hour sitcoms. And there was one that was um, about a couple that were not the prettiest people on earth, but they could fall in love like everybody else. That was one pilot. Um, I don't remember the, the name of that. Um, and then uh, WKRP. And I uh, wanted to do that uh, extremely uh, because I was a DJ uh, in college. And so I had a background in not only in front of the mic, but also in the back of the mic. I was also a sports manager and um, was running some of the business of the radio station. So I knew about, about both. And I let Hugh Wilson know immediately that, that I had that background. And he also immediately said, well, if we get picked up, you know, find, find a place for yourself and you can be on the show. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Oh, great. So that's how it all started. <laughs> now the, the titles changed over the seasons, but did that really change the duties? I was fortunate in that at the very beginning of the pilot, we, we did the pilot and, and, it, and I was there, I was there everywhere. Um, when Gary Sandy came into the CBS studios, um, we did the um, test screens um, on the set of Young and Restless, I think. And um, so I remember being in the video booth uh, with Jay Sandrich and Hugh and Mary and Grant and, um, and Gary was one of the people. And afterwards they went over the tapes and, you know, Mary said she, she preferred Gary and yada, yada. I mean, I was there and I was very, very, <clears throat> I was very, very fortunate to be able to be a lot of places because Hugh Wilson, and you'll hear me talk about him all the time, of course, but Hugh Wilson was the top of the chain. And from there, he let it be known from the very beginning, he had an open door policy and he meant it. And it was true. So I was in every rewrite because I could. You know, I didn't know anything about writing. I went to the University of Iowa, but I was not involved at all with the writer's program or anything happening there, except they had a 1950s TV station that um, they still taught TV production. So I did that. But the writing was something I learned uh, as it was happening in front of me. Uh, every Every Tuesday night was the, the main rewrite. So I got the, uh, actually, I didn't have to get the food after the pilot <laughs> because um, when they got picked up um, for the show, I, immediately the first thing I grabbed was the uh, records that had to be collected uh, from the uh, music uh, companies. And so I had to make all those calls and uh, and get get the uh, companies to send us, uh, the, the records and, and the posters. And, you know, so that's where I started, uh, in the show. And then when the writing came along, um, I was there listening and listening and listening. And, uh, they, t they, you always hear the stories about the first time you pitch a joke and, and, uh, what happens in the room. And I mean, what really happens in the room is just like it, it falls dead silent and you finally get the guts to you know, pitch a joke. But I did, and it got in, and it got a laugh. And uh, when that happened... Do you, do you remember what it was? Of course I remember what it was. Everybody does. Well, give us the line. Come on. Well, it was a callback. I learned what a callback was. You know, okay, all right. I'll, that's sort of... They've already written the joke one. So if you find an opportunity where it could come back, that's an easy pitch. 
Um, so there was a story in the first season um, and there was a new DJ that was, uh, uh, I, I don't know if his last name was McKenzie, the, the actor who played him. But um, at the beginning, Les is doing the news and he has his tear sheets and uh, he, the guy that's coming in to take over after Les's news wants to clear the area uh, under the mic and he starts to go for the tear sheets and Les says, nobody touches my tear sheets, right? And so, okay. And then as the scene goes on, uh, Les warms up to the kid. And uh, at the end, he says, by the way, you could tear my, you could touch my tear sheets. Oh, I hope you don't mind if I come to you for advice every now and then. Certainly not, Doug. <laughs> and you can touch my tear sheets if you want to. And because it was a callback that happened soon enough that the audience could remember when it was opposite, got a laugh. And, and, um, but the moment in, in the room when I pitched it and it was, and nobody said, nobody breathed, it was just like I was alone in the room. And then there was a little bit of a chuckle for someone and he said, that's good. And that was that, and that was it, it was in. So, so you were in pitch meetings, rewrites, you were there from, Season one, you were in on all of it. I was there from the pilot, from from before the pilot. I mean, when the first uh, casting session, then I was not in the casting, but um, I saw the sheets come down, who was coming in, who was going out, and just just paying attention. That's what you had to do as a runner, uh, at, especially at MTM. Just everybody had an open door policy. It really came from Grant Tinker, um, and and so I. Char Charlotte Brown, who uh, ran Rhoda, um, encouraged me. I came in one day. I said, I think I have something I'm thinking about. I said, Write it up. I'll take a look at it. Huh? What? Okay. And um, and I wrote it. And, and I remember she sat down with me, said, you know, you've got this and you can work on this. And she said, the main problem, I remember the main problem of the story was that it was an internal problem, internal story that was happening in Rhoda's mind and it had to be externalized. You had to take the idea and make it so the audience could see it, yada, yada. But it was such a learning experience that at MTM, that's how they ran things back in the late seventies. You know, um, it was wonderful. It was a great learning experience. Yeah. If we could um, talk about clean up radio everywhere, that episode, um, the, the first thing we were wanting to talk to you about is the title. And can you set it straight? It's IMDb, it's listed, and um, in the credits and everything, it's listed as Clean Up Radio Everywhere. But, and that's in the title. But in the episode itself, they call themselves Clean Up Radio Broadcasting Curb. And... Yeah, is there a mistake somewhere or no? No mistake. It was just a a change in one of the uh, rewrites um, that Hugh. I mean, Hugh was really uh, always the, the head of every rewrite, and and um, so on, on the original. I mean, I have the script. This is the first one that has the cleanup radio everywhere on it. So this is. Oh, this wow. is that. Um, and yeah. um, and it's cleanup radio everywhere. I I think I think it always was that like when it got changed from originally, 
it's just a, it's, originally it was called Bambi. Now, <laughs> nobody knew. But, and one of the original storylines was that there was a, a prostitution thing. It was just really a little wacky at the beginning. I should tell you how the story came about, but that was one of the uh, B stories or even C stories. And we didn't know what we really wanted to call it. So we called it one of the characters just to get the draft out, you know, so, you know, they had nothing to do with it. And then it went through a couple of minor rewrites, went down to the set um, as cleanup radio everywhere. And uh, that was when uh, Hugh took my original draft that, Eventually was called, uh, actually was called Clean Up Radio Broadcasting. Yeah. This one, it's interesting. This one just got, it's got just my name on it, which is how all drafts started. You got, you, I came in with the pitch. Uh, It was probably either, uh, it was a Wednesday. It was a Wednesday morning. I'll tell you why. It was because it, the, the Tuesday night, there was the election of 1980, 1980. So the election, Reagan. this was in November. And um, I remember watching Ted Koppel and Nightline. And I remember uh, watching uh, Falwell being interviewed and how influential he was in the results of Reagan getting elected. And, and he just had this sort of like this just, very satisfying smile on his face. I went, oh, that's just interesting. Um, and so I went to bed and I, and I thought, I wonder what would happen if this happened on KRP and they attacked Carlson, the most religious man on the station. Just, you know, that they didn't really know him and, and, and it went beyond just that kind of personal thing, but became this mission that they were on with. So I came in in the morning. I was really excited. I want to tell Hugh. I want to tell Hugh. I got an idea for a story. And um, so I said, I said, did you see the nightline last night? He said, yeah. He said, did you see the interview with Falwell? He said, yeah, boy, he's got, he's got an attitude or something like that. I said, yeah, I know. I just, I'm wondering if he, if he like gets the KRP because we knew that they were doing these uh, hit lists and all this stuff. I said, what if, what if he, you know, attacks the station and, and in the process also is attacking a very religious man who believes a lot of things, you know, and I didn't have to go very far. And he said, yeah, I, he, you know, I mean, he saw the conflict immediately. And, and, and one of the things that also what I was picking up uh, in trying to find a story for a comedy was first finding the drama. And I learned that from Hugh. Because he see he he reckon, he 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 suggested a couple of books to read if I was interested in writing, which I told him I was, and one of them was the Art of Dramatic Writing by Lejos Egri, and it just goes on about finding the inner stories of these people, and 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 then off of that, you know, comedy can come, but but the book doesn't talk about the comedy, uh, but the the basis and the foundation of all of the of the story itself. And then the, the character development and the comedy is all from that foundation. So that's what I had come in with. I wasn't pitching jokes. I was pitching a situation that Hugh could see, uh, you know, really what Hugh was seeing was what his twist was going to be on it. You know, it almost didn't matter what mine was. He knew that he could take it at some point 
and really make it something of his own, you know? So that was perfect. It was a perfect. So, so really I left that day, uh, I think with the writing assignment that I was going to be given a, you know, first draft and so forth. So I think after that, I met with the writers and we came up with a, you know, story outline and, um, it was off and running. So, so then when we, when the show was scheduled for actual production, it was, uh, the date on the draft here is March 24th. So I pitched it in November. My first draft came to MTM uh, on Jan- in January of 81. And then March of, uh, late March of 81, it went into production. And uh, so uh, Hugh had plenty of time. He really only probably needed, needed an evening to do it. Um, but uh, <laughs> when cleanup radio everywhere hit the stage, Hugh had written the script. He really had. I mean, he, he rewrote every word and he had done that before. So I, it wasn't a shock to me. This is the third year of the show and I was just starting out. And when you read what he had written, it was just like, oh my God, I, there was no way I could do that. But, <laughs> but the germ of the idea came from my, my brain you know, which was very satisfying to know that I was able to stimulate his brain to, you know, think of whatever he thought of and to think of imagine, you know, I hadn't thought about that. Uh, I thought about another, another uh, song that Carlson was quoting in another conversation. So it wasn't even with the Reverend. So, you know, I saw there was this sort of thing that was changed a little bit, but there was, but the, the script was completely rewritten by Hugh. And he saw, I think he saw the value of the lessons that were coming out from it. And he did something that he, I don't, he rarely did. And in fact, this may be the only time he did it on KRP where he asked to share credit. He asked me, you know, he said, do you mind if I put my name on this with you? I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'd be honored. You know, that was, that was, I'm glad you asked me. Thank you. And, and so that, that's why it, it and it's, I mean, again, I, I want to be clear. Those are his words and his thoughts on those pages. You know, um, I helped a little bit at the beginning. So it was, it was though, the, the experience though was wonderful to watch it go, you know, take, take control and, and, and be on its feet and, be, be saying the things that these characters were saying. And so that was pretty cool. Very cool. And I got, and yeah. so I, I was going back over these uh, two file uh, folder files in my cabinet of scripts. And so one is uh, all of the drafts. And then there's another one that's got all of the post um uh, letters. I mean, I, I was surprised that I, I saw this last night. There's letters here from Gordon Jump. Uh, he had he had um, gotten letters from viewers after seeing the show. Some of them expressing grave um, uh, disappointment in in his portrayal. You know, I mean, some really tough things. Really? And he wrote back. He wrote back these typed letter these typed letters, uh, two pages, single single spaced letters of. Uh, defending every word and every ounce of, of it. 
and and so these were from Gordon that he had Xeroxed and sent to me. Um, some were uh, uh, reviews and papers, and then there's this one from CBS in her office that um, I, I looked in because usually you could see who got it before you in this envelope, right? Mm -hmm. But it doesn't say. Nobody familiar, Sarah Snyder, Shauna, and then me. Oh, so this is from Grant Tinker. Oh. It says, uh, Max, for your scrapbook, now that you are out of writing work. Oh, and this was when the show was, uh, um, uh, I don't know when this was, now that you're out of work. Maybe it was just after the end of the third season. I don't remember anyway, but... These are uh, reviews from the newspaper about how much they, they love the show. And, and here's a personal letter from Gary Deeb, who was the, um, I had a, um, we had a, um, did he, he interviewed me by phone, I believe, uh, about this. But anyway, all of this stuff was just, I just discovered last night. It was a really kind of explosive, touchy, political topic to be getting into. Was there a sense that that was it, that season three was going to be it, and we'd better get these big messages in because we may not have a fourth season? No, no, um, no. This was just a, a, another episode in season three. And, you know, there were, there were definitely issues in almost every show. Um, maybe quite not so political and topical. Uh, well, I take that back. I mean, the, the Who concert uh, was definitely yes. that. So, yeah, I mean, it didn't seem out of the ordinary. Um, it was just something that they, they really wanted to do because it was happening. And, and so I guess it premiered, it was shot in March. I don't know if they even kept it for May sweeps. Um, I think it was April 12th, but, wasn't it, the air date? I can't remember. I, I think the air date was April 12th. We were just doing well, a that, that, on the Well, that would make sense. By the third season, we were, we were post-producing. They were airing about two weeks after. So uh, that makes that made sense. Yeah, I was, I mean, I was everywhere. I was in Cincinnati when we shot the airplane show. Um, mm -hmm. And I'll never did, forget the... Did uh, Rod... Did Rod Daniel go on that as oh, well? Yeah. Did he go to Cincinnati? Oh, yes. Yeah, he, he, dir he, he directed the show. Oh, yeah. Well, so, I knew he did, but they were there because of the strike. I knew they were restricted uh, as to what they could be doing, and I didn't know if he could have been there. But he was there, and you were there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, and th that was you know great fun dealing with that. I mean, I, I ended up being becoming a private pilot anyway. But um, I... I remember a, a helicopter uh, ride I took because we had a, a helicopter with a camera position uh, to shoot the airplane. So the, the camera operator would sit with his legs pretty much hanging out of the airplane. Um, he was buckled in, but the, and he was holding the camera, but it was through a doorway that was open. And um, that's where I sat as we went back from the location where the airplane was, was flying and actually landed on the uh, highway. So I took the airplane or the helicopter from there to downtown. 
And I was with my legs hanging out and I'm just sitting there looking at the Cincinnati <laughs> skyline. And the helicopter went around the uh, riverfront stadium. Uh, there were lights on. I don't think there was a game on, but uh, the lights were on. And uh, so I'm just circling the stadium like that. And that was just one of the experiences I had being an associate producer on a network television show. Yeah, Preacher Bob, his last name, it was referred to two different ways in the episode. Lonnie Anderson said, Bob Halliers with an S on the end. And other times it was Bob Hallier with no S on the end. So we were just wondering which is the. Are you sure? Are you sure that she wasn't? You sure that the she wasn't saying uh, Halliers in a an apostrophe kind of way? No, the, there's one part where she says, "There's a Mister Bob Halliers here to see you." Okay, um, I'm just looking in the script. And the spelling is it H A L L I E R? It's funny. Well, in the draft I have, which is a first draft, it's. Salyers, S-A-L-Y-E-R-S. It's quite possible it may have been hard to say. Salyers. Salyers, yeah. um, And I have seen Halyers written as H-A-L-Y-E-R-S. So that would be changing the S to an H. I haven't seen that. Which could have been done. I mean, it's the easiest, right? So, yeah, in this particular script, it's all just Salyers. Uh, sal- is there a story behind the name? No. Just not not that I'm aware of. Yeah. Not that I'm aware of. We Again, run into some names uh, where they're really important. There's some story behind it and other names where it's not. Just pulled it out of the air. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, for sure. I mean, I, I wrote a movie and the, everyone that uh, was named was named for a specific reason. Everybody. Um, now, in my draft, the, the, his the reverend's name is Westbrook. So I, you know. Oh, Westmore. You just wanted to change it, change it from that Reverend Westbrook. So, you know, who, who knows? I, I, I don't know the answer to that, which you'll yeah. hear me when say a lot in this interview. <laughs> no, you've, you've actually had a ton of amazing information. And I don't know if I've thanked you personally, but I want to thank you for also <laughs> gracias buzi which is one of our favorite details oh. <laughs> from the Daydreams episode with Buzz Sapien. You know, Linda Day directed. Did you work much with her as the writer? Were you involved uh, kind of talking to her about how to characterize or how to play things? Or, or did you have much interaction with her as director? I, I had interaction with everybody that was directing because I was a producer, uh, even as the associate producer, I was, uh, in charge of the post-production. That was the other thing with, with Rod Daniel, he was there right after the pilot. So he was there in the first season. Um, and he was the associate producer. So I was called, had to be called a production associate because production assistant was a director's guild position. And they didn't want to pay me Director's Guild whatever. So I, they had to figure out some other name to call me. So that's why I became production associate. But Rod made it very clear to me from day one. He said, I don't want to be doing this. I want to be directing. I don't, you know. So he threw everything at me that he was responsible for. And I kept saying, please, please bring it. I, I can do it. I want to do it. And, and so he did. So that's why that next 
season, was it season three or season four? I became the coordinating producer because they had to really give me a title that was so forth. So, um, so that's how those credits worked out. Something else we wanted to ask you about was um, the actor, Richard Paul. He, who, who was um, the preacher. He was amazing. And, and, as he he was a Jerry Falwell lookalike, really. Um, he even goes on to play Falwell in the Larry Flint movie. And mm-hmm. we read that uh, William Daniels had been cast for that part. Were you involved with the casting at all of that, or not? Not really. I mean, they would. I'm sure that I, they may have said, you know, we're, we're, you know, doing this or that. I mean. I, I don't really remember being that involved because I think there were only two roles in the in the show anyway, two guest stars. So one was the Reverend and whoever was that, I wasn't going to be stepping in the way of that. Again, I was a, a lonely producer. I was getting my my job, <laughs> you know, was was not paid to be a writer and so forth. So I knew the limitations. And so um, I do remember William Daniels being a part of the discussion. I don't know if he ever made it to the stage. Um, I, I just don't recall, but I do remember always thinking that Paul would be uh, right for the role because he clearly looked like uh, uh, Falwell. And, um, but again, that was my very immature experience saying, oh, that guy, that guy should play it. Yeah. You know, he probably knows English. Yeah. He looks like him. So obviously he can play him. Um, But so it did end up that way. And I know there's some that are saying, oh, you shouldn't have done that. It's a comedy and it helped. In fact, if you really listen when he's first revealed, there's a snicker in the audience. You can hear it. Oh, yeah, that uh, tri-faith broadcasting thing there, yeah. <laughs> well, in that case, you may have heard that we have formed a media task force called CURB, C-U-R-B. CURB. It stands for Clean Up Radio Broadcasting. <laughs> Clean up radio broadcasting. Yes, and you're the very first station we're contacting in the Cincinnati area. That's great. <laughs> and so they 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 got it immediately. And when you have that oh, yeah. kind of, yeah. you know, if you've got the buy-in like that, we're good. So, do you have a so, memory yeah. of uh, shooting? Shooting night, how things went, uh, audience reactions. Were you uh, were you additionally nervous since your name was on the writing line, also, or was it like in just any other show? It was pretty much like every show, except that you know people were congratulating me, you know, and 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 I got used to knowing they weren't congratulating me on the writing; they were congratulating me on the, on the idea, you know, on the concept, and and I readily, you know accepted that and and i and i think i even remember saying and thanking hugh right after that just saying yeah thank god you you know rewrote it or whatever um so that was really the only thing about that week that was slightly different um 
again, because I was fortunately really functioning as the line producer on the show, um, I was very busy with post-production on other shows and the upcoming show and whatever needed to be done about that. Um, And also from the very beginning on um, Thursday night, so Tuesday night was rewrite, Wednesday night was also rewrite, but Wednesday also started with directors and so forth. But Thursday was the real big run through for directors and for the producers. And I was so fortunate that for the 88 or 89 episodes that we produced, including the pilot, I sat next to Hugh Wilson. It was just him and me up in the director's booth watching the show and me sitting and taking his notes on both writing and directing what would make this better. And, 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 and so I was able to then give those notes with Hugh and remind him of them and be a part of the conversation. And at the end of that, at the end of the entire series, the knowledge that I was able to remember and pick up and apply was something that I know nobody in Hollywood had and has ever had. And if that's the one thing that I have left with, I have been able to put that to good use in, I'm a teacher now. And so I'm able to pass on some of those things in, in academic settings and so forth. But I, I have to just say that that, that, that that was part of my process also. So I'm up there with Hugh during my and his show, taking the notes and, you know, just seeing, seeing the icing on the cake of the idea. This is how we're going to make it even better was just a remarkable experience. Now, you never directed a WKRP episode. Yeah, I didn't on the original KRP, but I did on the new WKRP. Uh, when That's they, where when I was they brought headed. That. I was going to ask you, what were the differences between working on the new and, you know, at, and obviously I'm sure the biggest difference is no Hugh Wilson, but I was just curious about what the other kinds of, just the feel, the vibe of the show. Uh, you're, you're one of the few people that worked on both that could compare. So what, what were your impressions? How long do we have? <laughs> I got a big hard drive. Just keep talking. <laughs> it started with the pilot. Um, I was able to, you know, make a deal that I was going to be a, not only a producer, but, and a director, but also a writer on the show. So I, I, I was fortunate that they saw my, um, my abilities. So, um, so for the pilot, we were fortunate that we had Hugh. We did have Hugh on the pilot, but Hugh did most of the stuff uh, across country. We'd send him drafts and so forth. And he did come the night we shot. And, or actually it would, would have been the, the camera blocking the day before and the day of the shooting. So fortunately for the pilot, Hugh was there and, uh, and was wonderful. Um, more wonderful than I, that. Well, I'll tell you the story is just when we were, he had no problem with the show and the setup. He wanted to make sure it was going to at least uh, have the right foundation to move, to move forward. And he also saw, I believe the first six scripts of the, of the show and, and made notes. And that was, I think that was about it. Um, 
remember him coming into the rewrite with the writers and one of the higher up writer producers who had not been on the show before was trying to uh, describe something to Hugh or, or explain something to Hugh. And Hugh let him finish. It was a long diatribe. And at the end, Hugh just looked at him and said, I don't know what the fuck you just said. <laughs> and uh, nobody in the room would have done that. Nobody would have done that, had the guts to do that. Because it, it, what he said, I don't even remember. But I remember what Hugh said. And right after that, I remember what Hugh did. And, and Hugh did what he usually does is he said, nails it right on the head, what needs to be looked at, what needs to be done. And, um, and it's what we did. And I think the pilot was, uh, was very, very good. I think the first season um, was the, really the only one that I, what well, was the only one I was involved with. Um, after that, they couldn't afford me. I was just very, very expensive because I was doing all three jobs and I was not going to get paid without all of them getting paid. Um, but I was able to direct, I think, five or six of them. Um, I directed the pilot and the part two of the pilot and, um, and I wrote a couple of them. Uh, Cincinnati's favorite couple I wrote and directed. Um, and then I directed the one that Tim came back to act in and, um, I have to take a breath. And then I directed Burt Reynolds. Oh, you did. <laughs> uh, actually, actually, I wish that was true. No, I, I, I was a producer on the show. So I had a deal with Burt Reynolds when he came to direct the show. Ah. And uh, that was not a pleasant experience. I can just <laughs> pretty much say that. But we're, mm. we're curious. Um, and we talked to Janet Mishad, Tom Wells' widow, and mm -hmm. she told us she was friends with Hugh back in Atlanta, and then they were friends out in L.A., and she told us a story about the big blow-up between Bill and Hugh and when they separated in season two on the first show. Was, I was that in patched the room. up? How did they what, – what's that? I was in the room. Janet said yes. she heard it was a whiskey glass at Hugh's head. Uh, it may have been at some point, but um, uh, the one thing I do remember was that there was breakage of a glass table in the room by a oh. human body. Um, so that's all I'll say about that evening. But I, I was, again, fortunately there and saw the, the good the wonderful and the ugly of production, you know, and human interaction. And so I did see that. I saw the aftermath. Um, I remained friends, obviously, with both separately. Um, and when Bill came back to do the uh, new WKRP, fortunately, I, I think our, our relationship was, was steady and safe and friendship and so um, I had no problem coming back and working with him. And um, I think I'm, I'm sure, yeah, that when Hugh came back, you know, Bill was part of the process and everything seemed fine. So as far as in front of me, uh, however, they patched it up. It didn't happen. Yeah. That didn't happen in front of me, but it, it, they, they did. And it, it did help. Well, that's good to know because, you know, they had been long time friends and to, you know, have that rift is kind of sad to think about. And, 
that's nice if they they did get back together. Uh, and Donna, unfortunately, having a kind of a coughing fit, but a question she was wanting to ask you, uh, since we've recently lost Howard Hessman, uh, do you have any Howard Hessman slash Johnny Fever stories? Anything fun or uh, that that maybe has come back, kind of come back into your mind here in the last couple of weeks since Howard's passing? Well, um, I worked with Howard uh, personally. Um, just him and me in the room almost uh, every Tuesday or Wednesday night after run through. That was the time when we needed to pick music so that I could pick uh, or I could uh, during the rest of the week get rights to be able to use it, whatever he wanted to use. Uh, and I know recently I've seen a, an interview that Howard did where he was um, not the nicest guy to be able to s- describe me as you know, uh, somebody that was in the way of things um, um, in selecting music because uh, I never intended that to be that. But I did offer suggestions sometimes because uh, there was money that had to be spent a certain way. And and some of the music that he was requesting needed to be, you know, have a second or third choice just in case. And but we kept up uh, for four years to uh, get good. I thought a good give and take. So that was pretty much the only really interaction we needed. There was obviously other things during production that we would talk about, but that was the main every week thing with with Howard was making sure we got the right music in that that he and the production needed to to, to do the job. So Howard was always looking for the the best story the best way to tell the story and the funniest way to tell the story so that was always admirable in him sometimes the way he dealt with other things may not have been uh, but like everybody there's two 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 different people you know depending on the situation but it was a good situation for him to be playing that role because he was great he really was since you were involved with rights, I've got a weird rights question for you from, from uh, Clean Up Radio Everywhere. In the original, and we've got a set of discs that are the original, uh, a guy named Dale Kovar put together this disc that are as close to the original aired as you're going to get. The mm-hmm. game, the ball game that Art is playing with at the beginning makes the sound, it's about six notes of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. By the 1980s syndication re-edit, that was gone, and it was just now a generic electronic sound. It just kind of makes a wah, wah, wah. But uh, in the Shout Factory discs, which are the the ones that we are doing with the podcast, it's still replaced. So did you have to go track down rights for Take Me Out to the Ballgame to get permission to use that as the sound effect? And then was that cut out later? That's what it sounds like happened. <laughs> um, I don't remember having to do any rights to the computer sound or for the computer sound. And I don't remember being having it be take me out to the ballgame specifically. I, so I, 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 can, I, I should claim complete ignorance because I really don't <laughs> remember. I think if it was take me out to the ballgame, we 
I think we would have had to try to uh, get rights to that. And maybe at, at maybe originally when it aired, uh, they may have just said you can have it because it was a videotaped show and it was very short. And maybe once it hit syndication, then they weren't going to have any of that. So it's possible. But I was not involved with any of the uh, syndicated sound alikes or changes or, or anything or editing. I believe. Oh, what's his name? Another gentleman that was at MTM. I thought. I think he told me once was was involved with the editing of it for, for syndication. I'm sorry, I can't remember his name right now. But I was involved. I did. I was the one that did Lonnie Anderson's uh, doorbell. That was me playing that. Oh. <laughs> sorry, I was everywhere on the show. So. I made the doorbell. <laughs> Sorry. What did you do that on? On a xylophone? Uh, it was an electronic piano that sounded like, uh, at, at the time, a 70s tone that sounded like a doorbell. <laughs> so that's just did that, yeah. We noticed in some episodes set at her apartment, it would be knocks, just knocks. We're waiting for the doorbell, but it would be knocks. And then in other episodes, the doorbell goes off 10 times. Were you having mm-hmm. to pay per doorbell or per episode or how did that work? I think it just had to do with timing. You know, when we first started asked. to do the doorbell, you needed to hear the doorbell to know the joke, to get the joke and so forth. And you heard it a third time. Okay, let's hear it a third time. You know, the whole thing, you know, and don't open the door before, you know, all of that. And then sometimes it's just, how is it? Can I get, or whoever, just, can I just knock? Sure. I mean, whatever they wanted to do to get in and do the scene. <laughs> well, any other detail you've got like that, you can just keep talking like that all day, Max. We, <laughs> we love those kinds of stories. <laughs> I can tell you the story about when we were doing this show at KTLA in Hollywood, which was the first year, and then we went to do it on the MTM lot. Probably the inciting incident was the time that Hugh had, uh, every once in a while during the first year, there was no rewrite needed on a Wednesday. Maybe things were going so well on the stage that Wednesday afternoon, or we could go to lunch and maybe catch a movie and then come back for the run through because the run through that afternoon, Wednesday was for the production company. So one, I I remember we saw, um, body heat that way. That was great. It was just wonderful. But another time, probably later in the year, um, we went to the Pussycat Theater on uh, Santa Monica Boulevard, a couple of blocks, maybe a mile away from the studio after lunch. And then I remember at some point, Hughes said, hey, guys, we got to go. And we got up and left. And as we came out of the uh, Pussycat Theater, um, Grant Tinker was passing by and saw the writing <laughs> staff of his new situation comedy leaving the Pussycat Theater. And um, then we next saw him just before the run-through on the stage. I was not a part of that discussion or anything that happened after that, except I do know that the next year we did bring the show to the lot where MTM was based. So that's where we ended up being. (laughs) But one other story about that is that was the year that the CBS... Um, affiliates convention was coming to Los Angeles and it was going to be hosted on the Radford lot in Studio City where we were shooting. So Hugh had me go to the prop department to get 
a sign that we had used in the show. He thought it would be great to put up because his balcony overlooked the drive-in street to the studio. And this was going to be where the affiliates drove up and would see the sign. And we put it up and uh, that was the sign from Scum of the Earth saying, welcome scum. Hello, we're the scum of the earth. (laughs) No. Yes. Huh? Mm. Hi. So that was hanging outside Hugh's balcony that not only looked over the the drive-in, but also Grant Tinker could see it from his fourth store uh, office. (laughs) So this... The sign was probably only up about 20 minutes before it was brought down. But that's definitely, that was within the first couple of months of our affiliation there being at uh, Radford rather than in Hollywood. (laughs) We talked to Michael DeBar about the scum episode. And he said that final scene, he said the best of his recollection, the final scene when they trashed the hotel room with Howard in the hotel room, that was a single take. He said he didn't think that they did that twice. Do you remember that they quite just possible. do that the one time? Because they made a horrible mess out of that. Actually, I'm trying to remember if that show was before we changed the production schedule. Because we had started the first year doing two distinct shows with two different audiences like all the sitcoms did you did one in the afternoon dinner and the second one in the and then and then you also did pickups so it was a long evening so if it was in that run of shows before the christmas break i wouldn't say we probably did it twice then but if we did it after the break that's when we came back with the sad colada um and the first show back was we would shoot the entire show in the afternoon without an audience, make sure that each scene was shot two or three times so that we knew we had it so that at night we would only shoot the show once and go through it. And no, we had backup and we would get the audience in and out in you know, whatever, an hour and a half or so. So if it was in that segment, it's possible that we would have uh, done it that, that way. It was an early one. It was like the fourth episode, fourth or fifth episode that aired. So it was early on, the scum episode. Yeah, yeah. So it's possible also that uh, they did it just once in front of the audience. I don't know, both times, I guess. Maybe he doesn't remember like any pickups on it because we didn't need to do any pickups. So it seemed like just yeah. once. But no, I, I didn't, oh, during the first boy, run... I said, boy, did they trash it. I was thinking about if you guys had to go oh. and clean that up. That is just, it was just a huge mess. Yeah, that's what they paid for. And, I didn't, and we didn't have to clean it up. It was <laughs> Part of the, the job. props and set. So, yeah. Do you have any other stories? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I do. I mean, but, um, no, I mean, flashing, I know that I'm always passing by here in the Valley where we shot the softball go- uh, game and, and, um, just the great memories of 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 the the whole series was just a, a great learning experience for me. I was young enough at the time that all of it was just I was just a sponge and 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 soaking it all up and and I was very 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 lucky and I'm so grateful for the the time and the information that that gave me in it. And Hugh and I went on 
after KRP, we did Frank's Place together, which deserves its own podcast. I know that um, a a good writing friend of ours, Richie Dubin, uh, was for a while teaching up at Syracuse a a, a, uh, course on Frank's Place using the scripts to uh, teach the next generation about good storytelling. And um, and also I was back in Baltimore with Hugh and he was doing another show for another network t- uh, uh, shooting it. It was a, a boxing show about a young kid who was pretty much throwing away a, 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 a silver spoon future for uh, his chance at becoming a heavyweight champion. And it was so dirty gr- and grounding and uh, so wonderful, but didn't have a chance where it was being done. Um, but you know, Hugh uh, and Tim and and I went on beyond uh, WKRP to do other great things, and so I'm grateful for all of that. And uh, and thank you for doing this for WKRP. I, as I've learned since you first uh, contacted me, and I stayed in contact to just watch the shows and and look at the the website. There are a lot of people who were affected and continue to be by the show and. It just makes those of us who, who did it, it, it made every second we worried about what we were doing made it worthwhile because years later, it still resonates. And uh, when you're moving on in life, it, that's one of the things that you try to do is to uh, influence others. So thank you for all of your interest in the show and, and what we did back then. How about to thank you for you know, being part of the creation of it. This is something that we're, we're fans. We just love watching it and, and being a part of it. But you're right. The, what we have discovered since we've been doing this is the community out there of people that love this show so deeply. So many deeply. people will be wearing our shirts and they'll come up and they'll go, Oh man, I loved that show. And, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a big fan base out there. There's still a lot of people that like it. Oh, and we've we've got folks on the on the Facebook page that they can talk to each other just in quotes from the show. They they just have watched oh, I've it seen so that. often and know it so intimately. Oh, I know. Yeah, it's it's look, a lot of fun. It's what we did back in the day as we were moving around and just we, if we had an aside, we'd do the same thing. We'd use a bit or a line from a previous show. It's 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 how we communicated mm-hmm. back when we were you know working and living together. Yeah, things are flashing in my yeah. mind about when we shot Turkeys Away, you know, and putting Lissa and, and Tim Womack in the background. And that's where a lot of other people started being in the show and so forth. I will also reveal to you um, yes. before we say goodbye when I appeared on the show, unless oh. you figured it out already. No, 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 oh. no, no. Give us, give us the details here. First year, it was the uh, show. Oh, this was the show where Andy's girlfriend, came back love love returns love returns love returns uh-huh. i ended up being johnny fever's date oh <laughs> <laughs> all right in that episode of the podcast i'm gonna go do a phone call from the future i'm gonna reveal that <laughs> no that's fine i, I during okay. during so you rehearsal, were kim. kim yes during yeah. rehearsal this was early in the week because Anybody that came in to stand in for that role that didn't have a line 
that would be filled on Friday, the day of shooting, because all you needed was somebody to come in and, you know, so anyway, or Thursday with, with camera blocking. But starting on Tuesday with the run through, I was told, could you, do you mind just standing in there and, you know, don't react, just you're pissed because you're dealing with, you're ending up with Johnny. He's pissed at you because, you know, I said, sure, I could do that. And I got laughs and Hugh came up to me right after and said, would you do that in front of the audience? I said, uh, sure, I guess. And I did because <laughs> I saw everybody else was getting a role. And so they put glasses on me and, um, and there you go. Yeah. That's where I was. Uh, that's where I got go my back baby. and watch that again. Yeah. Now. We're going to, we're going we're gonna to go check that one out again. Andy, what's happening? <laughs> hey, Venus. Glad you're here. <laughs> You met our lucky uh, contest winners over here. <laughs> Mr. Venus Flytrap is with Rhonda Hemming. Oh, it's nice to meet you. And uh, Johnny uh... Kim. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, are you having a good time? Yeah, yeah, yeah we're having a wonderful time. Uh, we may go dancing later. <laughs> Look, the show's just going to start right now, so uh, why don't you take your sheets, huh? Max, how old were you that first season? How, how old uh, a guy were you? Well, I graduated from Iowa uh, in 76, and the first year of k was 79, 78. So I was two years out of college. That's what Chihawk was saying. He was 24, he thinks, when he hit Los 20, Angeles. Oh, so I would have been 22 or 23, I guess. Wow. Yeah, Tom, in fact, his, his, his son was teaching at my school uh, a couple years ago. So um, I got to see Jesse and uh, and get back in touch with Tom. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. You know, up until Thank Tom you. called us, we were pronouncing his last name wrong too. We were calling him Chi Hack. And he said, the way to remember it is I'm not a hack. I'm a hawk. I'm Chi Hawk. So- <laughs> During the first year, there were, there were always phrases that were being bandied about. One was Chi Hackian. That's Chi Hackian. And I guess Tom either... <laughs> Either the way he wrote or the kind of style or style of joke or whatever, but Chihakian became a, a phrase <laughs> that was used around the office. Well, any any of the oh, guests, I'm filled with a uh, bunch actors, of actors. Any of the guest actors that we have zoomed with, um, all of them said that working on KRP was one of the best experiences, if not the best experience that they've ever had in any of their acting jobs that everybody was so nice. It was like a family and they just loved every minute they spent. It started, it started with Hugh. Hugh was, was extremely nice to everybody and we needed to be too. I mean, he, he laid down the law to me first year. Another story I'll tell you is, um, you know, I'm a young kid who's getting, fed wonderful compliments about the work. And this is the first year. This is, this is, this is the first couple of weeks of production that, you know, Rod Daniel is giving me stuff to do and I'm doing it and I'm getting it done on time, but I'm also getting a little bit of a too big of a head on my, my shoulder here. And I'm not treating people quite nicely and I'm not talking to them nicely and I'm not saying please and thank you as well as I should be. And, um, and the reason why I know this is because Hugh Wilson sat me down and he 
quote unquote, gave me the, the speech, uh, the, the, why Christ died for speech. And I s- listened and I listened really well. I'm a good listener. And from that moment on until now, I uh, was very careful about how I did treat people. And so everybody on, on the crew, on the cast, everybody treated everybody nicely because everybody was respected and Hugh from the top uh, laid the dictate. So we did. And, and we knew we were doing good work. We were being respected by the people we worked with. And so when people came into that, uh, that family, they became our family too. And so, yeah, it was, it was all the part of what made KRP so wonderful. I think it really showed in the performances too. They cared. Everybody cared so much. Mm-hmm. They wanted to please Hugh. And in pleasing Hugh, you pleased the comedy gods. You pleased the, the Nielsen <laughs> gods. You, you appealed to everybody's greater you know, virtues because he was laughing. He was laughing on the side there. He, he was really having a good time. He, if he did, the show worked. It was that easy. You know, Marcus Isolio, who played young Master Carlson, told us the thing that impressed him most. He said he had a wonderful week. He said it was phenomenal. He had a great time. But he said the thing that impressed him so much and the thing that he remembers to this day, he said three years later, when the show was wrapping, he was invited to come to the rap party. And he said, here I am, an 11-year-old kid. I was in one episode of the show, but they were kind enough and considerate enough to remember me and invite me to the, to the final rap of the entire show. And he said, I've always carried that with me as, wow, what a, you know, what a special show that was. It again, came from Hugh. When we were putting the final rap party together, he said, let's have everybody back. Let's have all the family back for that. You know, and oh, there, I mean, there was no what are you talking about? You know how much that's going to cost. It was nothing like that at all. So yeah, no, it was, um, I, again, just a, a wonderful, wonderful experience. And, uh, when you, when you're starting out and that's your first experience, and then you start doing other shows and it, it, you really see a, a big difference right from the start of how they go about their business. And, um, and it doesn't have to be that way, but sometimes it just, has to be because again, it all uh, every production is so different, but it starts from the very top uh, uh, on down. Mm-hmm. So when I've been in that position, I've been very, very conscious of, of that and making sure that, yeah, everybody's treated really respectfully and well and and so forth. So that that turns out pretty well if you if you do it right you'll end up with a, with a really nice production. At this point, we were saying our goodbyes and getting ready to shut down the interview. We'd told Max we'd try to limit our talk to an hour. We were past the hour, and we didn't want to become pests. But after we'd shut off the recording, something in our final discussion caused Max to remember the famous Teddy Z. Teddy Z was a single-season, 20-episode, 1989 comedy starring a very hot young actor, the 24-year-old John Cryer, in the title role. The series was created by Hugh Wilson. The primary director who directed 11 of the 20 episodes was Max Tash. As soon as Max mentioned Teddy Z, I hit the record button again. Did you ever see that show? I remember a little bit of it. Actually, I had just mentioned it to her today. What was it? it? The famous Teddy Z. And it was kind of a teen comedy, right? I remember seeing an episode or two of it, I think. 
yeah, it was really Hugh's take on the business. Uh, and, and so John Cryer plays Teddy Z, who becomes the agent to the Marlon Brando character. And it was, a, it was a look at really this young kid who had no business being in the business, being in the business and rising in the ranks through no fault of his own. I mean, there were some real things that Hugh wanted to do with that. And it had um, the guy from Godfather who played Mo Green. Um, oh, yeah, I know who you're talking about with the glasses, kind of the tall guy. Yes, yes. Uh, he, won a, he won an Emmy that the year that Teddy Z was in. What was his name? Ah. The actor's name Max was trying to remember was Alex Rocco. He won the 1990 Emmy for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series for his portrayal of Al Floss in The Famous Teddy Z. It was Rocco's only Emmy nomination or win his entire career. He won an award for the, for the role, and I was the, the, the director of the series. And he thanked Hugh and he thanked Hugh and it was wonderful and wonderful. And then he got off the stage and he, he didn't thank me. I thought, oh, God, that oh. would have been nice. But I understand, I understand, you know, it's Hugh's show. I understand that, believe me. And then um, the next day he called and was on the phone for almost a half hour, mostly apologizing for not mentioning me. <laughs> I said, please, please, you know, I, I'm so glad you won here. So uh, that was a very fun show to do. And, and Hugh did some great things on that. And, and again, I, I was following all of the stuff I learned from him on KRP as far as my camera work and stuff. So that was, that was another good series that you we know, worked together on. Something you did mention I wanted to follow up with, and I, I didn't mention it when you first brought it up, was Frank's Place. Now, Frank's Place only went one season, right? They had 22 episodes. It was a full season, but that was it. Yes, but uh, we were, after the first year, we moved back uh, up to Universal, and I scouted a location on the back lot where the new Frank's Place corner thing that could look like we had done down in Culver's Studios. Um, we were moving everything up to Universal to actually produce a show and a, a series the second year, and we were, in fact, maybe a week or two away from the start of production when the, when the plug was pulled. Wow. And a great story now, about, is, yeah, I mean, there's a, other things definitely about that, but so we have a whole, boy, I wish it, it was. Is it available I know to stream or to buy on DVD? I, I have the betas in my garage. Um, <laughs> I know that Tim, I know that Tim Reed was working on either music replacement because they had that, they had the same problem if they were going to go and show the shows again. And he was working with BET at the time to maybe show the, the, the shows again. I don't know what happened with that. If he had actually started the process, was in the middle of it or, or whatever. That show, uh, after the first year, uh, Hugh rented a 1930s railroad sleeping car, put it on the back of an Amtrak here in L.A., and the writing staff, which included me, fortunately, uh, we slept on that car and went to New Orleans um, and then stayed in New Orleans for about three nights and then turned back around. And on the way back, started wow. developing the first uh, shows for the next season. And um, doing, doing the research oh, on yeah. site. Huh? That was... Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, we got to see the actual uh the actual Chez, Chez Louisiane and um, all of the, I mean, 
the places that we, we were all thinking about our, 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 our show. Well, you, and then you, you mentioned yeah. it needs its own podcast. And the thing about that, if to, in order for it to get its own podcast, people have to be able to see it, you know, to, to be able to oh, yeah. get a DVD or to stream it from somewhere. Yeah, I know. And, and, um, I'll get a hold of Tim. I'll ask him if anything's been happening with that because, uh, boy, some of the stories that we did on that show are like KRP ish on steroids. I mean, just really different, uh, a different tone for sure. Um, but when, and when you have a show called where's Ed, where there's a dead body and they have to be taking it around the restaurant to keep the health department away from discovering the body. There's a little bit of a sitcom <laughs> in that, but it's done so well on Frank's place, you know. So I was able to direct uh, the first year of that, direct and produce, and then I was writing an episode for the second second year about about the first white player that played in the Negro leagues. Well, you know, so much of what we've read about WKRP, there's always a reference to Frank's place, and so often it's like, well. He was good on WKRP, but he really came into his own when he got to Frank's place. And I want to see it so badly, and there's no place out there you can get a hold of it. Well, if I find out, I'll let you know. Um, yeah, it, it, because there's only uh, 22 or 24 episodes, it's hard to get it on a run for anybody's you know, station. But um, yeah, yeah, there's some truly remarkable work that was done on that. But I remember... Uh, two-parter that Hugh directed. Uh, he won an Emmy on that show uh, on Frank's Place. He he was doing a, a scene, it was a two-parter called uh, Cool in the Gang, where uh, uh, the, the young uh, bartender got into drugs and drug dealing. And there was a shot that he was putting together that took up two of the biggest stages. They had to open up the door so that the kind of lens that Hugh wanted to get this shot on went through two sound stages and and had such a field of, of a depth of field to it that it was. I mean, we were doing feature stuff on that show. This was amazing. Just the the jump ahead in uh, storytelling, both what he wrote and what he shot, what we were all shooting. Uh, yeah, it's a really unique series. I, I, I'll I'll ask him a couple of questions about that. I'll let you know. Oh, that'd be that'd be great. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Well, Max, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and. I hope you allow me to still pepper you with emails every now and then for details on things. Please do, because I'm probably one of the only ones that can, you know, sort of look. I, and I've looked back for some information, and maybe it's further into some of the boxes in, that I'm not afraid to, or that I am afraid to get into uh, in my garage. Um, yeah, when I get a chance uh, and I can uh, clear the air or make a, some, something known, yeah, I definitely enjoy doing that. So you're welcome. Well, thanks again, and thanks for talking with us today. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Keep doing the good work you, you guys are doing. We appreciate it. Thank you. May the good news be yours. The WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders.
almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!